Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Jamie Rosenberg, Assistant Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. Late last month, CVS Health and Aetna closed their $68 billion merger, allowing CVS to become a one-stop shop for a variety of medical services, while also allowing for directing customers with Aetna coverage that way, if it would save them money in the process. There are a multitude of other potential mergers on the horizon, including Cigna and Express Scripts and Walmart and Humana. As we enter into an era of mega-mergers, the American Journal of Managed Care convenes an Oncology Stakeholder Summit to discuss the reasons behind these mergers and what they mean for different stakeholders. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Journal of Managed Care's Oncology Stakeholder Summit, Fall 2018 Peer Exchange. Over the past several months, we've heard news about several healthcare mega-mergers, Walmart Humana, CVS Aetna, Cigna Express Scripts, and Amazon PillPack. And they're coming on the heels of several years of record merger and acquisition activity across multiple healthcare sectors. My name is Dr. Bruce Feinberg. I'm Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Cardinal Health Specialty Solutions. And I'm joined today by a distinguished panel, Dr. Michael Kolodzie, Vice President and Chief Innovation Officer at AdV Health, Ms. Dana Macker, Senior Vice President at Avalier Health, and Dr. Mark Soberman, Immediate Past President for the Association of Community Cancer Centers, Medical Director of Oncology Service Line, and Chief Physician Executive of Monica C. Health Partners, Frederick Regional Health System. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. So with a new round of mega mergers on the near horizon, just naming them again, Walmart Humana, CVS Aetna, Cigna Express Scripts, and Amazon Pillback. I'd like to start with a brief history of healthcare consolidation, what has driven it in the past, and what's driving it today. Mike, given you've seen it firsthand with the developments on the provider side with PRN, Texas Oncology, U.S. Oncology, I'd like to have you kick this off. Sure, Bruce. So if we think a little bit about the history of cancer care delivery and how it has evolved over literally the last 40 years. Um, you know, cancer care was delivered in hospital, typically inpatient. There were very few chemotherapy options. Uh, radiation was cobalt machines. Um, in the uh, 80s, it changed, and we started seeing um, the delivery of care shifted to the outpatient setting uh, and predominantly being delivered by independent physicians. Now, these independent physicians were not Marcus Welby. Uh, giving chemotherapy in your office is complicated stuff, uh, not to mention uh, there's significant financial risk associated with it. So the business acumen that's required to succeed is greater. So what we saw in the provider sector uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, were the emergence of uh, large uh, integrated uh, single specialty groups focused on uh, economies of scale, efficiency, negotiating power around purchasing of drugs, uh, very efficient uh, revenue cycle management and back office function. And that, the 90s were the era of practice management companies. And in oncology, uh, two of them arose, PRN AOR. Ultimately, they felt that they were better off collaborating than they were fighting. And so around 2000, they merged. Again, it was all about delivering a better product, um, having leverage with 
pharmaceutical companies, but also with payers, theoretically, because these systems were very dense in particular geographic areas as opposed to um, diverse across the United States. Um, it's interesting that we're seeing similar things, of course, in hospital systems now where they are integrating uh, uh, to achieve the same sort of economies of scale, leverage, um, uh, efficiencies, etc. Um, so I think on the provider side, the lesson was um, if you got bigger, you could actually do things better. So, so Mark and, and Dana, um, what, what Mike described that happened really beginning in the 80s and through the 90s was not unique just to the provider side, and it wasn't unique only to oncology providers. It was happening across healthcare. And, and so there's some of that, you know, we've been there before, lessons from history, and that's why I thought this would be a great way to begin. So I'd like to get each of your inputs on other market sectors um, in which you saw similar trends for consolidation. So, Danny, you want to? Do you mean outside of just physicians in general? Outside of just physicians and outside of <clears throat> oncology. Um, well, one, one thing that I just wanted to add to Mike's uh, in terms of the provider consolidation, first of all, was <clears throat> it was a very different situation, I think, uh, a little bit later in the recent past in terms of hospital consolidations and the purchases uh, of oncology practices in general was driven by a much different... Before uh, 340B. Right. Right. Pre, um, right. Right. So then 340B came along, and right. so I think that we had a much different market dynamic that was a dry, that was driving a lot of that. So there, I just wanted to add that <clears throat> onto, uh, onto Mike's. Um, do you want to go and then I'll follow on? Sure. I mean, the 90s was also the beginning of a lot of the consolidation on the hospital system side. Of course, I lived through one of those. Uh, I started my clinical career at what was a single tertiary care hospital. And when I left the organization 19 years later, it was a 10 hospital, $8 billion a year enterprise. Um, right, because systems like MedPartners, you know, in, in the DC, Baltimore area, didn't just happen because of 340B. That was, that was in place well before. Oh, absolutely. Right. Uh, it was, again, this desire to, you know, scale, thinking that bigger is better, more efficiencies, uh, more diverse, uh, portfolio of, of uh, services, uh, bigger catchment area, uh, you know, again, it was all scale. And you know, Bruce, the, the truth is, uh, if you just sort of drill down, right, so there's a lot of consolidation in the payer world, right? Prudential got out of healthcare, right? Prudential got out of healthcare. Um, and, and, and so the payers uh, operated under the same model, which is getting bigger gives you leverage, gives you operating efficiency, um, makes, you a, makes you a better company. Pharma, same thing, right? I mean, phar pharmaceutical companies um, partially grow by organic growth, but a lot of them grow predominantly through the acquisition model. And, and so each of them came to the conclusion that it's really, really hard in oncology to be a mom and pop shop. And just to your, I'm sorry, just to your point, Mike, you know, the, the model in pharma has changed a lot too. It used to be all in-house R&D. And now it's small biotechs going at risk and then being acquired by a larger company. Yeah. And I, I think that you bring up a good point there, Mike. There was so much consolidation and a lot of that um, being horizontal. Uh, and now we're looking at, I think, a very different type of consolidation in the industry with lots of vertical integration going on. So I think that in the past it was very horizontal now, a little bit different. Yeah, although there, there was that movement in the 90s with practice management companies. Um, so I was involved with one um, in my practice where the goal was 
you know, if you don't need the hospital, can you build a hospital without walls? If you have the practices, you have all the outpatient imaging, you have the laboratory, you have the outpatient surgery and procedural. There was that migration of services that could all be done in the outpatient and building the medical mall that also was happening, has happened once before. And, and, and so Dana, again, there is some precedent for this, but as you were alluding to before, a lot of it was still more horizontal. So we had the wave of specialty pharmacies merging with PBMs, kind of very much related. It's the distribution side, you know, uh, uh, of, of the management side. Um, and then we started to see, you know, again, even within hospitals, but this, this, the way that started to happen and, and kind of had a pause was this diversification that Mike is alluding to where we saw Highmark start to become also a provider, and we saw UPMC become a payer, and Geisinger became everything to everyone, and, and why did it always happen in Pennsylvania? But, <laughs> <laughs> but we also had United Healthcare uh, and Optum, and, and you know, there's all this talk about what's happening now with the mergers we'll get into specifically, but again, we had this prelude, but it paused. It, it kind of, it looked like it was gonna be a wave, but it wasn't a wave. So I'm curious what you think, like, why, why did it happen, but why was that not the wave and now it's happening? Well, I, I think the big drivers right now, I mean, we all know that healthcare costs are not sustainable. That's obviously, um, you know, one, one to put out there. But I think the big driver now uh, in terms of why it's happening more is um, we have the capability. We have the data um, to, to really drive these, the, that is driving these mergers and acquisitions. Um, you know, to, to Mike's point earlier, is it more about um, saving costs or is it more about, you know, po are we moving towards more population health? How can you actually save cost in the system? Uh, and how, how do you get there? And a lot of it is through data. So there is more opportunity for efficiency um, and really driving down their cost um, either from a payer perspective or a health, uh, a health system perspective, but there's just a lot more opportunity uh, to do that where that wasn't really available 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So anybody want to be more cynical and say that it really isn't about lowering costs for, for the, the companies that have been involved in this process? So Mike was really about growing your, growing your market share through diversification of services, a little different than really having this more noble you know, intent of lowering cost of health care. Well, and the other, sorry, the, the, the one other thing I would add is lowering cost of health, cost of health care while making it uh, a better uh, service for the patient. But then the other thing too is to make it more patient oriented. And I think that that's uh, a really big, the, the second really big driver right now. And that's where I was going with the data um, is that it is a lot of these mergers and acquisitions are really focused on the consumer and making it about consumer um, a better experience for the consumer if you think about the, you know, the Amazons and even the, uh, the Walmarts of the world. Like the, those are somewhat stunning in terms of what uh, they bring to the table. But you shouldn't forget for a second that those are not independent. So it's always a good thing to grow your membership. The more beneficiaries you are, the better off you can be. You want the right kind of beneficiaries, right? You don't want the ones that have 18 comorbidities that are gonna cost you a million bucks. Um, but growing your membership is always a good strategy. Enhancing the patient experience allows you to grow your uh, membership. Uh, controlling costs allows you to lower or at least reduce the rate of rise of your premium, becoming more attractive to your um, self-insured plan sponsors. Uh, Home Depot would very, very much like to spend not as much money next year on healthcare. So they're interrelated. I think 
um, the the ability to execute on a on a um, on a on a consumer friendly model, the ability to control cost is dependent on harnessing the information. Uh, that is there within your data, right? So they're, they're interrelated. This is all interrelated. Now, in terms of limiting horizontal uh, um, integration, uh, I have three words for you. Department of Justice. So th they, they just did not look very kindly on the idea that, that uh, Aetna was going to uh, purchase Humana. They didn't look kindly on the um, Anthem uh, signet deal. Uh, there were clear uh, concerns regarding limiting choice within specific markets, right? So there were markets where there was a lot of overlap. They were going to wind up representing 60, 70 percent of the commercially insured population. DOJ was not in, into that because they were, I think, legitimately concerned that it would impact uh, the uh, consumer choice, consumer experience, consumer cost, because, of course, when you have a monopoly, you can do what you do when you're a big business, right? All right, so I, let, let's focus now on, on these most recent mergers, um, and we, again, um, enumerate them, CVS and Aetna, Cigna and Express Scripts, Walmart and Humana, Amazon and Pillback. And I want to do something that hopefully will be fun, but it takes me back to watching the McLaughlin Report. And I want to do Wrong. kind of, I want to get, all right, for those who aren't Wrong. familiar, right? Um, one, one of the early political talk shows in which he would do rapid fire as the host to the guest, you know, yes or no. Uh, I won't pin you down that much. Do I get to be Buckley? You can be Buckley. Oh, good, cool. <laughs> we trade off. The, he, he wants to be Will Rogers. He wants to be folksy. But he, he's, so, he's so smart he can't help himself. Um, all right. So what I wanted to do is kind of this more rapid fire. Not one word answers necessarily. But I want to run, run through some comments uh, kind of that have been out there in, in the media coverage of this. Um, and so the first one would be, which of these proposed mergers do you consider to be the most logical? And which of are these are the most surprising? Somebody take one. Uh, Amazon and PillPack, logical and quite frankly brilliant. Right, because you need you need pharmacy licenses in 50 states. It's really nothing about PillPack. It's all right. about exactly. how to get 50 licenses quickly. Agreed. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Totally right. had that one. All right. So, I took the easy one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, I I would say the surprising one to me was Walmart Humana. Uh, Walmart moving into. You know, they have a very consumer-friendly business, and moving into healthcare was a bit surprising to me. Not to you? Uh, not completely. Uh, as somebody said to me once, there are many places in America where the closest Walmart um, is a heck of a lot closer than your doctor's office. And the idea of bringing uh, care to the consumer in a consumer-friendly environment, I think is a is a really interesting thought. So the, the CVS Mini Clinic Minute Clinic yes. you know, moves into Walmart now. Uh, yeah, and, I, and they're already in pharmacy. I, I, they're they they already do pharmacy. prescription pharmacy. I, I didn't say it wasn't logical. Right. <laughs> I just said that. that was it, I, I, yes, right. I just said it was surprising. All right. So rapid fire second. What are the potential benefits? I like to if you can enumerate one or two benefits to each of the parties or if you think like you just, you can't figure out why this one's going in. Somebody, go for it. Uh, the PBM payer uh, relationship and the ability to manage a cross benefit was one really quick one. So I, I was struggling a bit with that because I, when, I, when I first started coming out one after another and I'm thinking, but the, these PBMs have multiple pairs, and you know there was always that concern. You know, when when you when you make those alignments, you know, are you casting off all these others who are potential clients because now you're in bed with one? And that was a struggle for me understanding the PBM logic. Any, well, anybody got a response to that? Well, actually, I I would add on to that that I'm still trying to figure out 
where in the value chain the PBMs add value and whether ultimately that's a business model that is going to be sustainable. And that's why it was a great move for Express to go to Cigna because they secured their future. Absolutely right. They it, lost it, Anthem. It, it, they, they did not see, I think, a future in which they were going to have a growth, the potential to have multiple different well, clients. So, so you've, you've worked on, on the payer side, and I would argue that, you know, you could argue the PBMs were the only adult in the room. Somebody had to say no. The payers weren't going to do it in-house, so they outsourced it to somebody who could say no, and that was the role that they were serving. Yeah, so, so again, when I worked at Aetna, um, CVS was our preferred uh, pharmacy provider. Um, they were not, obviously, they were independent. Um, coordination of benefits was a nightmare. Um, uh, getting medical policy to match up was always challenging. Deciding who was responsible for what was uh, always a, an issue. And CVS would sell against um, a comprehensive health benefit that Aetna was offering. So they, they would literally, in the morning, have meetings together, and then in the afternoon go to basically the same self-insured plan sponsor and sell against one another. <laughs> so it, I, I think, um, I, I do think that uh, it allows um, the strengths of both to complement each other. Um, uh, you know, of course, Anthem is building their own PBM now. Um, uh, Cigna w was the only one who really didn't have their own PBM. CVS now, of course, with, with the Aetna thing going through, will we'll have the integrated thing. I, to me, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a safe move. It's not a particularly innovative move. Um, so a good segue, because the next question is, are there any innovations that you foresee coming out of these mergers? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm watching what um, United and Optum are doing with great interest because when you look at a comp uh, an organization that has vertically integrated and you look at all the building blocks they have put together, I mean, they're now in data analytics, they're in advisory services, they're in pop health, they're in ambulatory surgery, they're the largest um, employer of physicians in the country. They've surpassed Kaiser with their DeVita acquisition. Um, and now, of course, they're a huge payer. The question is, how do you put all those building blocks together? I'm sure they're scratching their heads trying to figure it out, but well, that not, to me is fascinating. I, I've heard rumors that they're not going to be in the payer business that much longer. And I, they may be true. I actually love both the Aetna CVS and Humana Walmart deals, and I'll tell you why. So there's, there's two models in which I think they're interesting. Um, how many times have you had a kid have an earache and the pediatrician couldn't see you? How many times did your wife or daughter have a UTI and the doctor's office was closed? By getting primary care closer to the consumers of primary care, it will massively improve the efficiency of the delivery model. Now, that could happen with Teladoc, too. I'm, I'm not saying it's the only solution, but I'm just saying. Um, you know, you got your Walmart Supercenter open 24 hours a day. They got a walk-in clinic. They're very, very efficient, a heck of a lot cheaper than going to the doctor's office. And the office. utilization of antibiotics is 60% inappropriate. And uh, it's no different than uh, everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so let's not point it. fingers. <laughs> and, and it's Humana, and Humana is huge Medicare Advantage. Yeah. And think about who goes into your right. Walmart, Walmart store. So I, I, now, I agree. Now let's I think talk that about, one's very logical. Uh, let's, now let's talk about Good chronic, voices are coming up. This is what I love. <laughs> let's talk about chronic disease management. Fascinating idea. So that's where all the money is spent, right? It's, most of the money is spent on people with a lot of medical problems. All right. So let's say... You made it easier for a diabetic patient to meet with a nutrition person. Now, I don't know about you, but in my practice, 
having a nutritionist on site to visit with my patients was impossible. Here, we've got Walmart. Walmart's got the diabetic specialist, nutritionist uh, there in the Walmart store. Uh, you go to do your grocery shopping, hint, hint, right? Social determinants of health, diabetic counts. Just, just think about the ability to form a stickiness with people with chronic disease. Hop on the scale, Mrs. Congestive Heart Failure. Let's see how you're doing. Oh, that Campbell's soup you got there, and that, that, that's, that's not going to work so good. Why don't we find something? It, it's just really cool to think about how we could change the chronic care delivery model in a consumer-friendly way, in a, in a way that people are comfortable doing. Um, and I think that would be amazing. And not just the brick and mortar aspect of it, but what we were talking about earlier as well is the data aspect. To be able to manage patients, you know, pull up an app, have alerts, have whatever it is that they need in order to manage a chronic patient would be. But that's going to happen because Walmart has deep enough pockets to make that happen where it never would have happened if it was just on the payer side? Walmart, Amazon, Google, whoever's getting into this space right. is going to make this happen. Apple, uh, I, I think Apple had has plans to actually put some uh, clinics out there, so I, I, I think that it will happen. And let's remember, traditional health plans are conservative organizations. Aetna or Humana, they would never, ever do this on right. their own. So the idea of disruptive. a partnership, it's really, it's interesting mm -hmm. Uh, because the partnership, it, it, although it doesn't sound like it's complementary, that's what people say when they see my wife and I together, they, you know, um, what's the attraction? The, the, the truth of the matter is <laughs> that they really are complementary. <laughs> they really are complementary, right? It, it's all about um, taking a really innovative, customer-friendly, consumer-facing organization and marrying it to somebody who knows something about how to deliver health care. Absolutely. Well, and then given you know the fact that there's a payer in this mix they can leverage their networks in terms of no. continuity of care with specialty care and with inpatient care to have this seamless network but the portal of entry being the primary care and the chronic disease management as you so well said right so impact to other stakeholders impact to hospitals impact to specialty physicians what are, are is there downstream problems for other other stakeholders here well i think uh Certainly, I, if I were a primary care physician, I'd be worried. As a specialist, perhaps not so much. As a hospital, depending on how much I've invested in primary care, plus or minus. The hospital's no longer next to the Walmart. That's not the new, the new, the new version. You go in, not, you get your now. groceries, and if the scale, and they check your A1C, and it's not right, and you actually move next door. Not yet. Future? Not yet. Maybe. Anything's possible. So that takes us, I guess, to a place where kind of begs that question of, uh, if we look down the road five years, because all of you have crystal balls and you're so good at this, um, do you, what, is this going to be one of those just waves that we talk about? You know, I, I think about again. We, were, we started earlier in our talking about the history, and we had all this practice management companies, and they all went away. None of them survived. I'm not sure none of them survived, but most of them didn't survive. Is this a wave that is successful, and is it transformative? And five years down the road, what do we see differently? Is it too soon? Is there enough data that we're going to know anything different in five years? That, that vision that Mike creates of this change in chronic disease management, does it happen or does it not happen? I, I think it does. I think it happens. I don't think that this is going to go by the wayside and mainly for the reasons that we've been talking about. 
we never, you know, 15, 20 years ago, the data capabilities just weren't there. And now they are. There's the opportunity to make this incredibly efficient based on data and to actually reduce costs. So I actually think that it is transformative and it, it's not going away. The other piece of this is, uh, and I know that we'll be talking about this at some point a little bit further on in the conversation, is um, you know the large employers who pay for most of the health care in this country have a vested interest in this. And we're starting to finally see in all these innovative inf um, relationships and, and constructs. And the fact of the matter is that it's, for many companies, it's the single largest line item in their budget is paying for the health care of their people. And they have a vested interest in removing absenteeism, presenteeism, um, having a healthy workforce. And so we're starting to see the payers start to have a voice. And I think that will continue to drive, um, as Dana said, this, this wave. But, but in, for this to occur, it's a good story. It, it's, it's an interesting, fascinating, cool story. Um, I, I have become so cynical that anything <laughs> can get done in five years. Um, we have to recognize that there's a couple things that are going to have to happen for this to actually really catch on. Number one, we're going to have to ha look at health outcomes and Absolutely. document that this model, in fact, rep represents an improvement in health outcomes, uh, ideally across the population. That's number one. Number two is we have to uh, obviously pay attention to cost. So um, it's funny, when I was at Aetna, when somebody came to me with what they thought was the greatest new idea, I, I, I'd always... Uh, look at it through the lens of, is this just going to be another add-on cost? So, so for example, patient uh, brings their kid to the, um, a member brings their kid to Walmart, uh, uh, ear infection, uh, mom isn't happy, she goes to the pediatrician tomorrow. That, that has accomplished nothing. It's, it's really accomplished nothing. Um, uh, I think that there are major challenges. I, uh, inter, interoperability and transfer of, of medical information between Physicians who have ownership over the management of that patient, and and these um, uh, these direct to, they're almost direct to consumer kind of opportunities needs to be resolved. It needs to be solved quickly. Um, uh, how this gets packaged into a benefit uh, as it's sold to the self-insured plan sponsor or, or to the individual member that needs to be sorted out. How do you price it? All that other stuff. So I think there are there are huge challenges to this moving forward, but in terms of, of concept, um, I think it's really interesting. I really do. Yeah, Mike, I, I agree with you. There are major challenges, but I think that some things won't change. Uh, I had, I was speaking to a payer not too long ago, and we were just talking about site of care shifts, and specifically on, in oncology. And <clears throat> he said, you know, all oncology, and we were talking about infusions, are going to be given in the home by, you know, 2028. Um, and that you know makes you pause, but that's 10 years from now. And if you think about that, especially uh, we are you know our rising population are millennials. They like convenience. Um, maybe that's a little bit of a lightning rod to, to mention millennials, but it's very true. Like the, it is much much more consumer oriented, and I think healthcare has to go in that direction. Not to say it will not be challenging. I think it absolutely will, especially when you think about uh, our administration and the challenges that we have there, which is a whole nother topic um, about difficulty. And but I, I think it has to get there. Whether that's five or ten years, it's it's going to get there. Now, there's another element here that that could significantly impact uh, 
moving this direction, and that is that the doctors hate it. I mean, they, they are so incredibly intimidated that this kind of merger is going to do nothing but empower the health plans to exercise increased leverage on, on their day-to-day -day life um, that uh, I can already hear Barb McEnany in the back of my head uh, what she's going to say about this because I know what she's going to say about this. And, and I think, uh, in fact, the AMA has come out strongly against the Aetna-CVS deal. Um, so uh, physicians could make this, th they could make it really hard for this, this kind of thing to happen. They could, but at the same time, look at who our largest payer in the market is. It's the federal government, and it's, we have a hard time pushing back against them. To read more on mergers and acquisitions, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. You can get in touch with us by emailing info at AJMC.com or following us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Finally, next week, look out for the latest episode of Managed Carecast on Wednesday after the holiday.